Good morning. This is the One Love Breakfast live from Inner City, Bristol. Dobre rano. Goede morgen. Bonjour. Guten Morgen. Glumera. Bon matin. Subhachahe. Yore gel. Buongiorno. Ohayo gozaimasu. Salve. Good morning. Dobre. Bonjour. Dobre utra. Dobre rano. Buenos dias. Good morning. Don ciao tidi. The One Love Breakfast is the people's choice. Breakfast. It's the One Love Breakfast live from our studios here at BCFM at Eastern Community Centre. Also broadcasting on Ajima Radio 98, uh, Pirate Nation Online, and Radio WSM as well. Now, every Wednesday on the One Love Breakfast, uh, we're speaking to extraordinary people. Today's guest lives and breathes diversity. He's currently founder member and one of the directors of the Diversity Trust and has worked uh, with worthy organisations such as Domestic Abuse Services, uh, the Allard Richards Trust and subsequently uh, the Terence Higgins Trust over the last 25 years. Uh, Barclay Wild, welcome to the Extraordinary People on the One of Breakfast. Thank you so much. Thanks Uh, for having me here. It's like I know you because I've read so much about you and Ivan Jackson always, uh, he's our producer, he always does his research and he said, Pat, I know you're going to read this at the last minute. I said, no, I know a little bit about you. I know something about you simply because of the the, the Bristol Diversity Awards as well uh, that you attended and that you were nominated for. So so welcome and thank you uh, for joining us. We're going to spend around 55 minutes talking all about you wow um i might sneak a bit of me in it you know, so that's great go for it i'm sure there'll be an opportunity so barclay first of all uh where were you born and tell us about kind of like the early years okay so i was um brought up in kingswood actually just on the edge of bristol and um i spent I suppose my first, very first few years living in Kingswood with um, my mum and grandparents. And then uh, my mum decided on a whim that we were going to go and live in London for a while. And I was living there for, um, I suppose, from the ages of about uh, five to eight to nine years old. And then we came back to Bristol. Um, And then I spent most of the rest of my childhood uh, living in Bristol and went to school in Kingswood at Kingsfield School. And um, from there... I um, left home when I was about 19 and moved right into the city centre here in Bristol and lived with my very first boyfriend, um, which is a tale of its own because at the time I was 19, he was 24 and the age of consent was 21. So we were living in a relationship which was illegal um, at the time because the age of consent back then was 21. It didn't get reduced down until 2003. So, um, yeah, I was living in an illegal relationship for the first uh, couple of years. Does that sound weird now when... When you, do you know, I did an interview um, with uh, a white South African probably about eight or nine years ago, uh, and they use that exact phrase, an illegal relationship. And that was because uh, they, their, their partner was black. Well, when you consider I'm sitting here now wearing a wedding ring because I'm married to my husband. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in what, how many years is that? 20 odd years. Yeah. We've gone from a, a, a state which criminalizes gay relationships yeah. to a state that celebrates gay relationships in, mm. in a very, very short space of time. Yeah. Um, and I think that probably was one of the motivating factors behind me being so damn angry at the way the state treated gay men particularly. Mm. Um, and that, 
I think that kind of that anger that drove me to um, wanting to to make change happen, to make social change happen. Let, uh, let me take you back to Kingswood, right? Because <laughs> uh, funnily enough, I I, I, I kind of grew up in Kingswood, really, uh, and funny old place, uh, Kingswood. What was it like for you? Because I was there. I, I've, I've had a record shop uh, in Kingswood where the old... It's a car wash now, but it used to be the Texaco filling station. People used to say it was like Beirut on a Friday or Saturday night because pe- people come out from Chasers and all the other places and they'd all go to the filling station. There was always someone being racist or shouting or fighting in the filling station, banging on the windows. There was always stuff going on. And my flat was right next door. There was a block of two, uh, two shops and I was above there. Yeah. So living in Kingswood was was rewarding in some ways uh but it was a blooming nightmare in others how was it for you yeah it was an interesting and complex mix of being okay and being safe i mean I, i lived uh nowhere near the high street i lived in a kind of a little bit of a kind of not quite leafy but a bit of a suburban place um my grandparents actually my grandmother bought the house um next door to where we lived in uh during the second world war um at the time kingswood was a village it was you know it was it wasn't attached to bristol at all and um you know i think it was quite leafy around there at, at that time but you know for me growing up it was um i think partly about keeping my head down uh, if i'm honest whilst at school um i was really lucky in going to kingsfield school uh it was about a two mile walk down two mile hill road mm-hmm. um i used to play the cello when i was at school and i used to have to walk with my cello on my back <laughs> which was a bit of a funny one it's not so, going to get you many fans is it I no guess. sometimes i get the bus but anyway it was um it was an interesting mix and what i what i found was a bit of a kind of um a place, uh, a bit of an oasis in the music department there. Um, I had some amazing music teachers who I think, well, I'm a drama teacher, I think who recognised the difference, the diversity in me. And they kind of sort of saved me, really. Um, my drama teacher, particularly, he um, was uh, approached me during a drama lesson and he said, oh, um, next year, would you rather do drama than double games? Because, I mean, right. I didn't like rugby, if I'm honest. <laughs> I didn't like football. Me neither. So- I like football not rugby <laughs> so um i did drama instead of games which was an absolute lifesaver and um yeah i think hanging out in the music department and we we had a um, the school burnt down the year before i started i hastened to have, that was nothing to do with me whatsoever so why, um, did, why did you say it then <laughs> i wasn't even at the school at the time <laughs> but it burnt down and so we had a brand new building uh for the for the music and drama department an amazing theater and and it was really lovely to be able to go into that space it's the fielding isn't it is it the fe- it used to be called was it the field no it's not the what was the theatre called? Because it's King's Oak now. Yeah. And I, and, and yeah. The Octagon Theatre. Oh, the Octagon Theatre. That's sorry. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because of the shape of it. It was, uh, yeah, shaped like an octagon. But um, I think that was a, a place of safety for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was um, kind of in that transition from kind of, um, you know, going into sixth form, I remember going back after the school summer holidays and I'd, I'd dyed my hair jet black and it was all like stuck, stuck up on end, like, you know, like the goth days back in the early 80s. Yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think I quite got away with wearing makeup at school, but it, it, there was certainly a, a different attitude when you're in the sixth form. It seemed to be that you could get away with... You could be yourself more, couldn't more, you, in terms much of more, yeah. how you dress and, and being creative. So in terms of sexuality for you, at what, what, age do you, uh, what age were you kind of thinking, do you know what? Mm-mm. Yeah, uh, I'm not like him. Him. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's a good question. It, it's a really hard question to actually be able to answer, you know, coherently. But in a sense, I suppose 
in some way, I kind of always knew I was different. Yeah. I couldn't name it. I couldn't give it a label. I didn't have the language for it. Yeah. Um, and what I've subsequently learned is that there was a, an entire community and a movement out there in the world that I, I had no idea that this was going on. And interestingly, I watched um, uh, my husband and I were watching Brokeback Mountain again the other day. And this was happening in the 60s and 70s that the, when the characters were you know, the, in the story. And when you think about where they were in places like Wyoming and Texas, they mm. were completely isolated. Isolated, and yet you had pockets in like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, where these amazing things were happening in terms of community and activism yeah. and stuff going on, real progress being made. And yet they they were completely isolated in the sense that I could see parallels with that, where I didn't know what was actually going on for myself. I didn't understand it. I couldn't describe the words. I couldn't give you the language. And I suppose what really sort of sh- sh- shook me up, I suppose, was at the time when there was a real pressure to have a girlfriend a pressure to you know to to snog a girl yeah. or to dance you know have a slow dance those yeah. kind of pressures yeah. that you get when you're a teenager and you get a family members oh are you dating yet have you got a girlfriend yeah and and, and yeah. The, the, there's all that that kind of if you like the pressure not just from your peers but actually from the aunts or the uncles or the or your, your you know your parents friends will always ask you those questions and how do you answer them? yeah we had a we had a bit of a different family if i'm honest my, my mum was um a single parent and my grandparents were just they were just angels they were lovely um i did have my grandfather say one time to me um he was a printer um in his sort of spare time as a hobby and he said oh if you ever want any you know wedding invitations printed just let me know that was the (laughs) only comment he ever made and he certainly never made that agendered comment but i came out to my mum when i was quite young um i suppose i was about 14 15 um and i remember the conversation we were upstairs in my room and i think she sort of sensed there was something wrong with me and she said always oh, you know what what's going on and I said oh I've got something to tell you she said what is it and I said oh I think I'm like David Bowie and she said what do you mean and I said I, th- I think I'm bisexual because I couldn't even say the word gay you know right. and her response to me was brilliant it was like oh let's go downstairs and have a cup of tea and talk about it <laughs> <laughs> nice Kingswood way and what you know what was it that that got you to garner up the courage or even the reason to say listen I need to speak to mum even though mums know right they know something but but for you what was the trigger that 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 made you decide it was then that you were going to do it (laughs) such a long time ago I'm not sure I could answer that properly but I'll give it a go um I think from the hazy memory of oh god how long ago is it 35 years ago I think from that hazy memory it was I was just at a point of desperation Mm. Um, I think I'd tried to talk to friends about it and it hadn't really worked out well Um, I think my closest friend actually she said oh don't be so silly you're not gay you know it was like a Mm. kind of complete like you know just brushing it off thanks for that yeah (laughs) like a denial and um, and I just think I was I was probably unhappy and I think my mum sensed that in me so it was her that kind of instigated it but yeah I just think I took a leap I think one of the things that had happened which was an interesting thing for me was that we'd been on our family holiday uh, my mum remarried so my second dad was with us and we the three of us had been on a family holiday and we were in, we were in New York City and I remember so vividly this happening I was 13 and we were at the base of the Statue of Liberty doing the whole tourist thing and I remember a guy looking at me and that it was a look that I kind of now would relate to being something akin to someone cruising you, you know, kind right. of like looking at you as a fancying thing. And obviously that was a bit dodgy because I was 13. But I remember <laughs> I remember that feeling. And I think yeah. it was 
moments like that that kind of made me realise and also because I was involved in the alternative scene in Bristol um, and there was an amazing alternative scene in the Bristol in the early 80s you know the kind of clubs like Romeo and Juliet's and the Bastille Club mm. which was just wonderful and it provided space for the kind of the queer kids and the unusual kids and the street kids to hang out and be safe because we were yeah. different and you know the music was so energetic and you know people really did dress up and were outrageous and mm. I was probably one of the more outrageous ones if I'm honest but I think it was that that gave me the confidence to say actually do you know what I think I need to talk about this now I think I need to be honest with myself and with with you so from 15 years of age uh you've you've spoken to mum how about um further afield in terms of kind of you know friends family school um how was that for you in terms of kind of uh, declaring and, and coming out and saying, listen. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do that until I had my first relationship. So there was a bit of a kind of, um, an, uh, kind of a period of four, year, four years or so between talking to my mum and then really coming out. And I think I was terrified, if I'm honest, mm. of people finding out. I certainly didn't come out whilst I was at school, although I did very much sort of have that support of that kind of alternative community and space mm. that I could be hanging out in um, but obviously you know at age 19 I moved in with my first boyfriend and we lived right in the city centre just behind the Colston Hall in Bristol on Lodge Street and um, it was inevitable you know people were gonna find sure. out and and what happened was it it was like wildfire you know as soon as one person really? knew everyone knew <laughs> yeah. it was like you know i would even hear sort of people like third people no, third distant people removed saying oh you know commenting on on me living with my my boyfriend but i remember actually taking my gran um not not my mum's mum but my dad second dad's mum um to my flat and i had <laughs> my poor boyfriend i had to make sure there was no evidence of him being in a flat whatsoever that's awful isn't it isn't that awful to have to have lived like that and um, I, I, I don't know how they thought i got to be living there i mean what, what was i thinking well it's his friend you know, <laughs> my it's friend yeah, yeah but there was yeah, only yeah. one room it was a studio <laughs> with one bed <laughs> so what i'm fascinated about and, and there are some amazing things uh that you've done and that you've achieved. And I, I'll probably want to try and talk about that in the second part after the news, but attitudes, right? So, so you're at 15, you're conscious of your identity, you're conscious of, of, of your sexuality, but of course the world around is very different and, and, and not accepting, not, not just the world, but attitudes So what we see on TV, the way that um, people from the LGBT plus community are depicted, you know, a, a, a young boy said, mum, I'm gay, but actually, what what does that mean to to everybody else walking up and down Kingswood High Street? <laughs> uh, how do people view that? Well, from what we see on sitcoms and, and TV and, and everywhere, really, in the media, not very positive. At what stage were you conscious of... Of almost fighting against the tide. Yeah, absolutely. I, and and there was a def. The, the word fighting is a really good word, actually. I mean, my role models when I was growing up were John Inman and Larry Grayson. I mean, what appalling role models. And I wasn't like them. I didn't think yeah. they were me. And I, how could I be like that? How could I be the same person? That wasn't wasn't possible. But I I think what happened was I. There's something in me. So I did a, I did a, actually, I did a radio interview a few years ago where the, the, the interviewer said to me, if you didn't have to fight this cause, w what would you do? And I, I remember not responding in the best way I could have done. And what I would now have said is, actually, 
social justice is something that's in me. You know, if 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 LGBT rights were achieved and won, and we you know we, we were yeah, we were completely accepted in society, I'd still want to be a feminist. I'd still want to be an anti-racist campaigner. I'd still want to be advocating for disability rights. You know, because there is so much inequality and so much you know in terms of social justice that needs to be achieved. You know, and and even when you think about not only human rights but also animal rights and the environment and kind of you know climate change and all those things. So I you know I I'm a campaigner. You know, when I did my um my Myers Briggs kind of personality test, you know, I am the campaigner. I am an ENFP, and so um you know I can I think it's it's born into me, and I don't I can't yeah. it, I can't explain how that is. It's just you know it's a bit like um a part of our identity, like our gender or race or age or whatever that's integrated. It's who you are, but as at the time growing up you f- i felt very much like an outsider like i didn't fit into society right. and what's happened is society has changed so that now i don't feel like i'm an outsider anymore and that's what that's real social change mm. that's that's an amazing thing to have to have and, happened and and you know to all intents and purposes you've been you, you've been part of that process as well change um when you say you did the, the, this whole personality testing and, and, and what it is it what is it about you you know so so for me people say Pat what is it it is a bit about me now um, no no Pat is, what is it about you that makes you you know want to campaign or challenge or whatever and I just look straight at my dad I look at my dad and I say um, and my mum in many respects well, my dad was kind of you know a lefty loved Tony Benn he'd always say the banks are all bloody rogues and be careful and you know always telling me um, what I need to be careful of and the way that the system is etc etc it, it wasn't about brainwashing but it was about you know we had a business when I was 13 when we first moved to Bristol and basically it went out of business because my dad wanted to give all the homeless people in Birmingham uh, breakfast in the morning you know but that wasn't the right thing to do to make money but that was his that was the way that he was And so his influence was very much on me and I became how I am, probably because of him and and many others. Mm. So for you, you, because I I, I don't know, is it within us for for you? Was was there that that fight and that search for justice? Was that in you or were there things that you saw as you were growing up or or from from people close to you or even not so close to you that, that inspired you and said, you know what? I could do this. Yeah, I think certainly my mum was a really positive role model. Um, well, still is. And um, I think that she, where, whereas her campaigning was around climate and, and environmentalism and, and, and animal rights, that, that really did inspire me. I remember, um, I think I was about five years old, and well, maybe quite young anyway, and we were doing a collection for, maybe a little bit later because it was in the 80s, but we were doing a collection for, um, to, to raise money for Greenpeace. And I remember knocking on a door. This was in Kingswood, actually. I remember knocking on someone's door and sort of, you know, a little boy with a rat tin rattling, you know, raising money for Greenpeace. Oh, we're not giving money to them green and common women. And I was like, <laughs> no, it's actually about Save the Whales. But I think she was definitely an inspiration um, and has been all through my life. But another thing that happened, I suppose, was in that period of my first relationship where we, we, where we were in an illegal relationship, I think that really did fire up my political awareness. Mm. And that period of time, so between the ages of sort of 16 and 20, 21, yeah. that really did fire up my kind of energy to campaign. And what happened was um, my relationship ended in a nice way, actually. He went off to live in the Netherlands, into Amsterdam, and I went over to Australia, to Sydney. And I saw another world. It was literally, I kid you not, it was literally like going over the rainbow, you know, like in kind of Wizard of Oz kind of uh, way of being. And 
there, the laws and the progression and the community was so different. You know, they had they had laws that we had we could only imagine would be possible in place in in Australia, New South yeah. Wales, and particularly in Sydney. And I saw a different way of being. And what happened was, I lived in that for nearly two years. Yeah. And so when I came back to the UK, I was like, Do you know what? We don't have to accept this. We we can. It can be a different place. And I think that really did very much fire me up. At what stage, if if at any stage, was there? So there's going to be a sense of injustice because you're, you're looking at and um, you know the treatment. You, you say now you're in an illegal relationship. At the time, did anger ever occur in in, in terms of say, well, this actually isn't fair? And and, and was it maybe? before you went off to Sydney and, 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 and discovered a, di- a different way or, or, or maybe when you came back and said, you know what, it doesn't have to be here. Because sometimes many activists say and many campaigners say, actually, I got angry, um, you know, not uncontrollably, but the anger was then channeled into campaigning. Yeah, I think the word that sums it up really well for me, and it's actually the word um, that, that, dis- that, that is the name of an organisation I used to be involved with in the early days of my activism, is Outrage. Um, and that I think was a really effective way of channeling that mm. energy and what outrage does or did was to use very creative um, social action so non-violent um, kind of activism yeah. and it used things like theatre and cabaret and camp and humour to yeah. get across really important and big political points uh, and I think that gave me a space so i'd you know i'd been in this place over the rainbow literally in sydney and i'd seen what was possible there i'd come back to the uk I'd, i ended up being in london and i think when i was involved with organizations like outrage and act up which was the um the aids coalition to unleash power so i mean don't don't forget also that we've got going on at the same time as all this the whole issue around hiv and aids mm. and the kind of complete devastation that was going on in the community in the late 80s and particularly the way that the right-wing media were were talking about it it was the days of thatcher wasn't it and uh it, it was a scary time um specifically i mean many people will have watched um, you know uh, me and my wife sherry we went, we went to the watershed i think when pride was uh, uh shown the the film and it kind of arthur oh, scargill you know the whole it brought back so many memories in terms of that time that you know the minor strike and this unlikely friendship that was that that was struck up but actually i remember the tv adverts i remember being a you know a young man and the tv adverts were all i remember there was one and it kind of had cues of people who said well if you've slept with her you've slept with him and you've said and it was all all, all like aids it's a you know it's a gay thing it's a da, da, da. and there was this absolute it it was terror actually mm. forget isis and mm. or, or you know the bader meinhof gang and all the all the ira yeah it was aids but um and, and we were scared because it was misinformation wasn't it yeah and also when you're of that community so when you're you're growing up as a young gay person and it's about you at the same time as that you've got those internalized hate messages around you know to be gay is to be a pedophile which is hideous hideous messages that society perpetrates against you so you've got aids going against you you've got the whole myth- mythology and stereotyping around being a pedophile at the same time as all that you've got the thatcher government putting in a law which was called section 28 which was basically shutting down even the discussion of being gay in schools and to stop public organizations funding anything to do with being gay or lesbian so it was coming at me from all directions and that that led to outrage 
So that drove you, and um, as I say, you know, when I look, at it, it's like your CV, isn't it? A list of all these things that you've that you've done. So, so initially there was outrage, um, and how did that how did that move on in terms of uh, more campaigning and being involved as a as an activist? So what I did was um, I was in London in the uh, early nineties working with Outrage and Act Up, and at the same time as that, I was really honoured actually and fortunate to have been involved with um, the organisation of Pride in London which at the time was was on a massive scale Uh, we organised in 1992 we had Brockwell Park we organised the very first Euro Pride so it was like a pan-European Pride event and the numbers will escape me but I think it was something like 230,000 people came to the Pride Day that day and I was one of the where was this? In in Brockwell Park in London and I was involved in I was one of the directors of of Pride at the time and so I left London in 92, 93 and came back to Bristol to live again. And so bearing in mind, I'd been through all that, you know, all the kind of trauma and all mm. the things that were happening around me politically. I'd seen another way of being in the world in Sydney and Australia. I'd been involved in really high profile campaigning organisations. I often jokingly say I did my apprenticeship with Peter Tatchell, which I did literally do, uh, not on a formal apprenticeship, but, you know, Peter actually was there with me at Outrage and we worked together. And so I learned so much from him. So and involved in organising a massive pride event. And, and so he's, I came, he, he's someone that, that was demonised so often in the media as well, you know, as until a, until he started, you know, to, you know, calling out racism and then all all of a sudden, you know, he's the, the best friend. Yeah. It's absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, people like that had a massive impact on me. And I, then I came back to Bristol. And the, the brilliant analogy I like to use is uh, there was a lovely organization still going strong called Gay West. And they used to, their aspiration was to like, you know, raise 20, 25 pounds on a Saturday if they did a, you know, cake sale. And I came back to Bristol saying, do you know what? We, we can do so much more than this. It is really, really possible to do so much more than this. So, you know, literally, I got involved with Alad Richards Trust. I got involved with Gay West. I, I was a volunteer on Switchboard, taking calls from really desperate people on the helpline. Um, I then also set up Outrage Bristol. Out of that, we then set up a Pride event here. And it was the first time we had a Pride march through Bristol, through Broadmead in 1993. And we had 500 people, which is nowhere near the scale that it is today. But, you know... It was important that those first things happened. You know, yeah. they were they were significant. Did anyone ever tell you at, uh, at the time, either friends, uh, partners, um, family, mate? Do you need to have a rest? <laughs> because because <laughs> when I read about you and I read about what you're doing, it's like you went from this to this. You set up this, and while you were doing this, and it's like you know, so there was outrage and all, and it was like, take a breath a minute. <laughs> But, but but you can't actually. There's can too you much at the to time? do. <laughs> there's too much in the world that needs to to change. <laughs> it's you know people. I think that we, give someone busy something to do. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know if you want something done, give it to someone who's busy, and it, that is the reality for me. <laughs> wow. So we've discovered you're a Gert Kingswood kitty Gert, uh, Gert from, from 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 back in the day, um, and really uh spoken about some of the early years with you and what i was trying to find out and i think i've kind of got an idea now um is what it was that drove you you know a a sense of injustice the environment in 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 which you were living and and we've kind of touched as well about media mainstream media the way that it depicts those that are different uh and and not what what's classed as the norm but it seems to me that and i don't know whether it was at the time, but when you look back, it seems to me that, that your, your ride through 
from from initially speaking to mum at, at 15 I'm not saying it was straightforward but actually that you you seem to be focused enough to be able to navigate it through not that it wasn't difficult uh, and and probably upsetting and, and hurtful at, at times would that be fair to say? Yes, I think I think I was lucky. I, I I think there's something in all of this stuff around resilience, and I I don't know why that's part of who I am, but I do think I am. And I suppose when really hard knocks come at you in life, you, you, there are a number of different ways in which you can respond. And I think I've I've been incredibly lucky. Mm. When I look at some of the young people I work with now in our in our youth projects, you know that are going through really quite tough issues you know at home with with parents and family and and you know the way they're responding to those in terms of their you know their mental health you know the the depression even self-harm in some cases you know and, and obviously you know I've been working around this community for long enough to know that that suicide's a reality for some people that um and those those figures are shocking and and it's men predominantly yeah. um that and and that is tragic, isn't it? So, you know, so sometimes because uh, of sexuality. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we we know that you are significantly more likely to injure yourself, to self harm, to attempt or contemplate suicide if you're if you're LGBT. That's mm. the reality. That's not to pathologise being gay or lesbian or trans. It's to say that actually, when you grow up in a society that treats you in the way it does with stigma, discrimination, and prejudice, that actually growing up with those those messages all around you that you're you know that you're a deviant, that you're bad, that you're wrong, that you're evil, that you're perverted whatever that you internalize those messages and and that can lead to lead to to to, to harmful um choices that we might make yeah. as as um uh, you know as we're growing up and as as young adults we'll go back in in a second to um that this journey of yours but i want to bring you just right up to date now is that you you say that the world is a very different place and it is uh well this country is uh, is a very different place in in 2018 but still massive amount of injustice it was only um some months back that we were criticizing and getting statements from the police who were you know incorrectly uh giving a justification for i don't know i, I do you know what ivan if you're listening i don't care what they call i'll call them spithoods or whatever they want to call them right but they call them something else but it was their justification that was so medically scientifically factually wrong and it was almost like going back to the 80s scaring people saying well actually if you spit a police officer they could get hiv yeah i mean it was plain wrong wasn't it it was absolutely terrible misinformation and i think some really good work has come out of that actually so i think you know we were all right to be campaigning against Mm. against the police and to be fair to them it did take them a bit of a sort of a a kind of a jolted start and they they kind of apologized and then they apologized again and then they apologized again they kind of finally did the right thing by removing the the, you know the the misinformation in the first place but actually, as a result of that, you know, now they're working really well with HIV organisations in the city, and I think that they're they're listening, and I think they 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 are. I think it, it, interestingly, I obviously in my work now, I do masses of work with all different organisations, and the majority of those organisations, if not even a hundred percent, the door that you're pushing at is a door that is easily opened, and I think the police are like that. Whereas twenty twenty five years ago, it was a totally different animal. When I first started working with the police in in this this area, even in Somerset 
mindset. You know, when I remember back to some of the earlier days of that work, it was, um, yeah, it was very, very different. I, I had um, a very senior police officer say to me in a training environment, he was sitting right in front of me and he just looked me in the eye and he said, um, you know, oh, we'll be talking about paedophiles in this way in 10 years time then, will we? And I just looked at him in the eye and I said, consent. And that officer left the job within six months because he couldn't stand the change in the culture of the mm. organisation. And that's good. Uh, you know, and there's, there's a few more that need, <laughs> that need to do that as we speak. Um, yeah, there really are. I want to talk to you about this, a, a lot of buzzwords around intersectionality here. There's one. Um, but funnily enough, uh, only three or four weeks ago, it was... Um, uh, a young black guy actually being suff- uh, suffering uh, homophobic abuse, uh, uh, having, uh, yeah, violent uh, homophobic abuse, but actually not being able to speak to people, family, uh, because for his reasons, um, couldn't come out to family, but had to deal with police and had to deal with all the other organisations. Um, but, but just felt, look, I'm, I am a black man. Um, and my community will reject me. My parents will reject me. So I can't come out in the press and say, look, this is what's happened to me. Why don't the police help me? Um, so there are those, two, you know what I mean? those two basic disadvantages. You, you've worked in this environment before, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and it's really difficult to, to, to try and get the authorities and others to support you when actually you're scared yourself. Absolutely. And uh, interestingly, I was um, talking to um, Alex Rakes at Sari, my, my fellow freedom fighter, and um, we were talking about the, the kind of parallels with being LGBT and being uh, from mixed race dual heritage background. Mm. And actually, those are the pe- people's experiences of not being able to get the support of your family. Are They tend to be people from those, those identities. Mm. Um, so if you're LGBT and from a dual heritage mixed race family background, then and, you know, you're kind of that that is real intersectionality. Yeah. And it's an interesting one because I'll just use one analogy of being, you know, for example, being gay, a young gay man, um, you know, and then you can put the intersectionality of being black as well, for example. But it's, you know, you're less likely to be able to get support of your family. Whereas if you're the victim of a hate crime because of your ethnicity or race or because of your disability or mental health or whatever, you probably can rely upon your family and your community for support that's obvious but you know when we look at the really harrowing statistics from organizations like shelter for example where we know that 25 percent of young people who are street homeless are are lgbt and they're most likely to have been ejected from from the home because you know i didn't know that wow so you know when when we look at that that kind of um that data and that translates into real people's lives uh you know you know that actually yeah you are less likely to be able to get that um that support and feel safe being able to be yourself and you know when you're the victim of a hate crime that has far-reaching impacts upon people you know i've already talked about all the issues around mental health and self-harm and identity concerns but actually they then get compounded as a result of being a survivor or victim of hate crime and it's really difficult talking to this this young man and 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 we 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 considered doing an interview and you know doing the whole voice changing and whatever but one of the really it was really sad for me to listen to somebody say to me look when i spoke to somebody that was trying to help me Uh, And there's no point in going through the names of the individuals or even the organizations. It's not important right now. But the saddest thing was, is that I couldn't actually get myself to say 
gay. Uh, he said, I, I, I kind of said bye, and I said it quickly, right? And the only person he managed to speak to was a female police officer in his own home and, and give the complete story mm. of how and why and the dating app and all the other bits and, bits and the stuff mm. that had happened. But when he spoke to other people from what he perceived as his community that, that were going to try and help him, mm. he felt ashamed mm. to say it, mm. to yeah. actually say it. And I think it's 2018, for God's sake. Really? Mm. But that is the fact for some people, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, you and, know, and not just from BAME backgrounds either. No, but, not at all. You know. and, and when I think back to my own experience of saying to my mum, you know, I think I'm bisexual like David Bowie, and that was, you know, 30-odd years ago, 35 years ago, you know, actually... It, you know, we haven't, you know, culture, society, yes, it's shifted, but actually it's the, the issues are still the same. Mm. I did an interview for um, some research with um, a young guy. Uh, he was 15. It was in a youth project and he was talking to me about his experiences of coming out. And he'd literally just gotten to this youth project. It was about a year or so since he'd come out. And he said his words to me were, bearing in mind this was very recently, growing up in Glastonbury in Somerset. And his words to me were, I thought I was the only person like now, I remember those exact thoughts 35 years ago. So if yeah. young people are sitting in their bedrooms right now or mm. wherever thinking, I am the only person like this, that's really, really shocking because we have so much more, you know, in the media, online, internet, the apps, you know, all of those things where people can get information. But young people are still feeling that vulnerable and that isolated. And that's, that's, that's why that's my raison d'etre is to actually do something about that. Mm. Now, I'm probably not going to be able to go through all of these organizations. I mean, we'll talk about the Diversity Trust in a bit. Uh, but tell me uh, a little bit about your work with the Terence Higgins Trust. Um, because I think, I think I'm right to say, when you first got involved, I mean, it was, it was a very difficult time. And it was during, was it during those Thatcher kind of uh, times of, of real hostility it was just after i yep. was involved in the very early 90s um okay correct me if i'm wrong i think it might have even been john major was it <laughs> who knows who remembers some, him some abstract conservative yeah um, you know, prime minister anyway uh, yeah and what was really fascinating was that the government the conservative government then at the time really significantly invested in HIV prevention programs. And so we suddenly saw massive amounts of funding coming into work for prevention, particularly work with gay and bisexual men. Mm. And so I came in, uh, got involved in, in the very early 90s with Alad Richards, initially as a volunteer doing campaigning work and involved with Pride. And then I was appointed uh, to a post with Alad Richards Trust in 1995. And I worked there then for nearly 10 years and it what happened was Alad Richards Trust became Terence Higgins Trust so yeah. there was a merger that happened with the national organization so we're talking historical because I left there in yeah. um, 2002 so um, yeah I was I was involved with the trust for nearly 10 years and um, I was involved mainly in the the HIV prevention side but what was stark for me now on reflection was that at the very beginning of my my work life there i remember that we would be going to service user funerals on 
quite a regular basis. Mm. And literally within about a year to 18 months, so sometime in around 96 going into 97, suddenly there was this, this treatment, this new medication that was available. And instead of like looking to people, you know, in terms of supporting towards end of life care, we were saying to them, right, we well, need to go back to work now. And so we were we were running back to work programs and it was just it was shocking, actually it, positive because of the ama- shocking in a positive way. Yeah, because of the amazing, amazing treatment that people and actually you and know, those were like the combinations at, at the, the time combination again, therapy. Yeah. Uh, and, and yeah, people would talk about kind of making sure you had the right combinations that would that would work for you. And uh, we spoke to Becky Mitchell last week uh, and uh, she was talking about her diagnosis. And actually, when she went to the doctor, he's saying, yeah, OK, it's going to be a bit difficult. But you have a normal life. You live you live long. You just take this one tablet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. How things have changed. And certainly that wasn't the case in the early days. I no. mean, I remember talking to people that were taking 35 and more tablets a day. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you'd have to set, take some with meals, some before, some after and like different interviews throughout the day. You know, I mean, kind of, you know, kind of coherence around, you know, drug taking alone was a yeah. was an amazing thing for, for to put on people you know to be to be able, be able to adhere to that regime it was hugely challenging but at the same time it was saving people's lives and as you rightly say you know giving people now the life expectancy that you and i would have absolutely what was it like in that environment uh challenging of course and you know all right post thatcher but still those 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 stigmas those stereotypes were there and and i mean you explained about a conversation with a police officer um, who, 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 who basically was was talking complete rubbish. And I'm sure you will have been in situations in your job working for Deterrence Higgins Trust where sometimes... De- were there ever times where you said, it, it's not too difficult, but why am I doing this? Did you ever feel that you were banging your head against a brick wall trying to convince others... There was something inherent in me that 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 won't that there's some there's a positivity. Maybe it comes mm. back to my campaigner ENFP Myers Briggs thing. I don't know, but there's something in me that actually I never felt that. I never felt that I couldn't achieve change. And the the point I was making earlier about this, like like almost like pushing an open door, is still the case, and it always has been. Um, I think you know. It's there are frustrations, of course, because, you know, we're talking about, you know, big organizations, corporate organizations, yeah. bureaucratic organizations, you know, like the public sector, like councils and the police and health. And, you know, and, and it takes a massive amount for for change and for influence to happen. But I never, ever believed that um, I couldn't achieve and that we collectively as, as individuals, as groups, as organizations, we couldn't together achieve change. And, and I think it, as a result of massive of work that's been done by many many people over the years that change has been has been realized so in a sense i never felt disheartened i never felt that i couldn't actually be a part of of making making things different and better for people and i think that's happened and partly because of that uh, you were headhunted weren't you to uh <laughs> kind of yeah. well can you say, <laughs> tell us about that do you know well, what do you know what 
we're 10 to 10. We've only got 10 minutes. Go, let's get a move on. Okay, quick. Okay. So what happened was I was, um, uh, I, I, I left Bristol. I went to Brighton, yeah. was working for Department of, well, on a contract with Department of Health. And that was around health inequalities. And it's a thing that's gone throughout my, throughout my career. And um, whilst I was in that role, I came in contact with an organization based in Brussels who were working around health inequalities and campaigning, particularly around things like, you know, suicide prevention and those yeah. kind of strategies. And um, they offered me a job. And I said, yes, of course. And um, that, why, that, why, why, of course? What was it about the job that uh, was it the wages? Well, no. was it, what was it about the job that, that, that got you to think, hmm, I want this? It, it, in a sense, on reflection now, uh, mistake is too strong a word. It, it was an opportunity I was presented with to work across Europe. Like yeah. the, a, a, at the time of this extension into a much larger member state with Eastern European countries joining. And it was extremely exciting. You know, a huge challenge, working very differently. You know, a lot of the work was online. I was involved with campaigning, but I was also setting up in, uh, in events across Europe. I was involved with, you know, setting up a conference in Marseille, going off to Vienna, to Brussels you know, working across most of uh, the European member states at the time. And that felt like an amazing opportunity. But why I say possibly mistake, but not that that's not the right word. Why I say I may have now in reflection, if things are different for me, is that I realized through doing that, and I wouldn't have had that realization if I hadn't done it, I suppose, was that actually I really am much more interested in working on the ground, grassroots with people in communities locally. Because when you work at such a multinational level, you are disconnected from people. You know, your conversations may happen on telephone or by Skype or online or whatever. But actually, I'm really interested in in right here, right now with real people in communities. And is that part and parcel of what I mean, we will move on to the diversity trust now. But but in terms of the grassroots stuff, uh, for many people, there has to be that, you know, there has to be that communication, that concept, because absolutely right. There can be a danger. And I worry with uh, Morning Alex Race, but I worry sometimes with organizations, even like sorry, when they get so big is actually you can be so pally and friendly with sometimes those that you're supposed to be fighting, maybe the police or whatever, or, you know, uh, Andy Marsh. Morning, Andy. You know, uh, and but because you get so close with them and you see them kind of week in, week out, sometimes it makes it more difficult to challenge. And, and sometimes those people at the bottom that are trying to get you to kick the door or give them a not give them a slap, literally, but um, that it's more difficult because you're actually. Some people will say, "Ah, well, that so and so is up there now. You know, they're in a they're in a great job. Um, they don't care about us at the bottom anymore." I think there's an interesting balance. Um, I think it's possible to be a critical friend. I think there's an interesting balance where at what point do you become part of the establishment? And yeah. I think that's that's kind of where we're we're going. And I think the reason that I have been able to maintain independence is because of that that fact that we are completely independent. We don't have we're not beholden to any one entity organization funder commissioner we you know we have hundreds and hundreds of different clients that enables us to be able to be critical of people mm. and organizations like for example the police so i can literally go on twitter and say to sue mount stevens what's going on we need to sort this out yeah um and to andy marsh and others as well and and they'll expect that from you won't they uh, I, I suppose you wouldn't expect anything else for you to have honesty and integrity really quickly because we're nearly running out of time and i think it's, it's, you're the next the second guessing you need to get back for another hour so the whole thing about the diversity trust is that look you've set this up 
Um, and I like the way that you didn't want there to be this hierarchy. So it's kind of like, look, you know, let's work together uh, on an equality basis because it seems a bit a bit weird if you're 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 campaigning for equality inclusion diversity you're going to set up this organization full of a hierarchy so how does that actually work there how do you guys kind of manage to get and i say guys in a you know in in, in that way you know boys in a gender girls, inclusive not, not, way yeah, gender inclusive. thank you <laughs> you've got the terminology so how does it work so we have um Basically, we have directors and associates, yeah. and I my absolute intention is for a flat structure. Yeah. Um, but of course, you have to have management. You, you know, you have yeah, to have. Of course, there has to be some kind of you know structure in terms of who makes decisions and and those kind of things. So you know, the the there are seven of us on the board, and um, we're we're all equal in in relation to that. But we do you know we do subcontract to associates, and so in a sense, you know, there are people that are doing the work. But I do not in any way see myself in any way above anyone, or, you know, anyone else. And so, but you are you are seen by by kind of like the, the the wider world in many ways or in in terms of in you know in this area i'm reading an article about you know founding father and then <laughs> you giggle um but you know when i ask people about it is barkley wild who's met him what's he like because i am a bit like that you know and come on tell me yeah. you know, nudge nudge tell, tell me and everyone's got good stuff to say about you and i'm i'm still if anyone's got any anything yeah, phone not good, now phone me now but how so maybe how, a few exes of mine again the the, <laughs> yeah go on so i'll give you the number but how how do you feel so, so it's kind of a bit of a responsibility on your shoulders but it's one that i would say just looking at what you've achieved that's been i suppose that that's been earned because you you've kind of worked your way through Mm. Uh, in terms of diversity and inclusion and, 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 and you haven't just stuck to a one cause, look, I'm just going to fight for LGBT plus communities. I'm just actually in terms of, uh, you know, receiving an award for um, tackling domestic abuse, for example, in, in South Glass and, and, and race and, and, and all those kind of broad uh, protected characteristics. So do you feel in, in some way uh, there's some unfinished business um, for you or do you think do you know what I could just shoot off to wherever I don't know Marbella or <laughs> well, wherever I'm going you want to go China tomorrow oh, wow. coincidentally but that wow. is just for a vacation I will be yeah. back but no um couple of points then so best person for the job mm-hmm. so we are known in the in the region for um working around uh trans transgender awareness and that's something we do a lot of training around yeah. and i don't do the delivery of that because it's delivered by people who come from a trans background trans history yeah. so people like cheryl morgan um who i'm sure you know yeah um you know she's one morning of our, cheryl yeah morning cheryl she's one of our um she well she leads on trans awareness yeah. training for us you know we've got um russell thomas who's been a, a kind of long long history uh, advocate for uh, race equality he will often lead around some of our uh, broader themes on equality and diversity but also leads on around issues on race so best person for the job but unfinished business oh my god where do you want me to start i mean you know <laughs> yeah absolutely i was hoping you'd say that <laughs> i mean yeah I, this is the start this is yeah. not the end no no way no way but what i want to do more around actually is um is think about how we can work 
more smartly and more digitally because we are we are predominantly a digital organization although we go and do okay. work indirectly with teams but actually i want to make our work more accessible to a much much larger audience so i'm looking at things like e-learning and webinars and you know yeah. li- real-time webinars where people can actually join a training room in, and, in a virtual and we space. can acknowledge the the, the the learning habits of the wide, wider community actually because people want to do that often online yeah. uh in in privacy we got 20 seconds <laughs> wow uh it's been an incredible conversation, incredible journey, but and I'm glad I've learned more about you, the person, as the uh, literally reading the CV, if you like. Um, I just want to say on behalf of all of our listeners uh, and everyone at One Love Breakfast, thank you for what you do. Um, and you really are an extraordinary person, and I think we're going to have to have you back. Um, this broadcast will be available as a podcast. Where can people find out more about the Diversity Trust? Basically at Diversity Trust on any social media, so Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. Brilliant. Enjoy the vacation to China. Barkyball, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Bristol's BCFM on 93.2, online and on your mobile. BCFM is an award-winning community radio station for Bristol, bringing you national news on the hour.